I hope you have your Bibles with you. I want you to turn to Esther. Uh, Esther is a little book in the Bible, and it's right before Job. And Job's a pretty big book. It's about in the middle of the Bible, and you can find it there. Turn to Esther, and you can just open to chapter 1, verse 1, because we're going to be in Esther the whole day. It's a fascinating story. Um, it's a historical event that's rooted even outside of the Bible. There is cuneiform tablets that talk about the king that we're going to uh, talk about. Now let me tell you right off the bat, his name is Xerxes in the common tongue, and in another tongue he's called Ahasuerus. Okay, so just remember Xerxes and Ahasuerus are one and the same. Now some say even though it's the most encouraging book in the Bible, at least I think it's the most encouraging book in the Bible, some people say that it shouldn't even be in the Bible. And here's why. Because God is never mentioned outright. And not only that, nobody ever prays. And not only that, there's no religious training involved in the whole process. And it's true, God's name is never mentioned outright in the book of Esther, and yet he is everywhere in the story. Some have said this, there are no coincidences, just the vapor trail of God. You know what a vapor trail is? Okay, vapor trail is when a jet goes through the sky and it's cold up there, and that exhaust comes out and you, you can see the little tail behind a, a, a jet. That's a vapor trail. So let me say it again. There are no coincidences, just the vapor trail of God. In other words, God was here just a minute ago. You might have not seen him, but there's evidence that he was here. Are you with me on that? Okay, so let's turn to Esther and hear her story. We're going to just pick it up, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through the entire book very quickly, but not so quickly as to get you lost, hopefully. So, beginning at verse 1, chapter 1, it says this, Now in the days of Azarhas, or Xerxes, Azarhas who reigned from India to Ethiopia, this guy is in charge of the whole world. And he, there's over 127 providences. And in those days, King Azarhas uh, sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, and in the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. And the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces that were before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, in fact, for six months, for 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a second feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Okay, let's just stop right there. He's in the third year of his reign, and he's going to give a banquet for the entire country. <laughs> Pretty nice of him to do. And then after six months, in his hometown, the citadel of Susa, he throws a feast for seven days. Now, I'm going to tell you what happens. At the end of the banquet, uh, on the last day when the king was kind of drunk, he was in high spirits, the text says, uh, from wine. The guy liked wine. He drinks wine throughout this entire book. He summoned his queen. Now, the queen was doing her little thing over here, and the king was with all the guys over here. Now, Vashti was her name, and she was a knockout. She was gorgeous. And the king wanted to show her off. He's kind of in a drunken stupor, and he says, 
Call in the queen. I want to show her off because she's the best looking girl in the kingdom. Vashti says, I, I'm, I'm wondering if her hand was on her hip. No, I ain't coming. And that just, the king was in a great mood. Now he's really ticked off. And he's like, what should I do? What should I do? So he calls his councils together and says, what should I do? Vashti's refusing to come, and I've already announced it. She's going to come up on the stage. And the nobles and the councils and everybody, his wise men said, you know what? If, if she disrespects you and you don't do anything about it, every man's going to go home tonight, and the woman's going to say, uh-uh. And so you need to punish her. So this is what we recommend. Tell her that she's forbidden to ever be in your presence again and take away her crown. So the king thinks, okay, that's pretty good advice. I understand what they're saying because she refused the king and he made a decree. Now, here's the thing about the Medes and the Persians. It's not like our law systems where we can repeal laws. Once the king signed the edict, it was in stone. You could not reverse it. He had to live with his decision. So he says, okay, he signs the order, and boom. A few months go by, and guess what? He's missing his wife. And now he's kind of having some regret. But he knows the rules of the Medes and the Persians, and he can't undo what he's already done. So he's kind of despondent, and it says in the text that his attendant said, well, why don't you hold a beauty pageant and take another wife? Why don't you find another queen? And he says, well, that's not a bad idea. So uh, the king is going to do a, a beauty uh, pageant uh, and choose a new queen. Think of it as an ancient TV version of The Bachelor, okay? I mean, that's really what it is. It's a TV version of The Bachelor. And it's at this point in the story that we're introduced to two Jewish cousins living in Susa as a result of the deportation to, to Babylonia. Mordecai is one of them, and he's a Jew, and we told, we're told in the text that he's a descendant of the a tribe of Benjamin and from Kish. Maybe he was actually a relative of Saul, King Saul, who knows. But Mordecai's name was probably derived from their God, so it's a Persian name. It's not his real name. And even though he's a Jew, he has a Persian name. And Mordecai has been taking care of his cousin because his cousin lost her mom and dad. So she, he's adopted, and her name is Esther. That's her Persian name. And it, it from the god of Istar. Anyways, but her real Jewish name is Hadassah. Now this is important. It's derived from the root meaning hidden. Catch that. Hidden. Her root name is called Hidden. Now, she's, she's knockout uh, gorgeous. And so guess what? She gets pulled in. And she is going to have two, uh, not two, she's going to have 12 months of beauty treatments before she can even see the king. And asked, uh, Mordecai says, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. Because we're in captivity don't tell anybody you're a Jew. So she doesn't. And her name is Esther, which is a Persian name, so nobody is suspicious that she's Jewish. It's almost like Nazi Germany. You don't want to tell anybody that you're a Jew because you'll have a rough life there. And as God would have it, Esther is chosen in the first beauty pageant. And she spends a four-year, uh, like I said, a year getting beauty treatments. 
after, four years after Vashti, the king, Xerxes, chooses Esther to be his new queen. Now, there's a second beauty pageant, which is kind of odd, but you'll see why it's important later. There's a second beauty pageant. And Mordecai is hanging out by the city gates, and he hears about a plot on the king's life, an assassination plot. And so he goes, hmm, I'm going to go tell Esther. Esther, somebody wants to kill your husband. Esther goes to the king and says, these two guys are trying to kill you. They investigate the matter. It's found out to be true. These two guys are hanged. But nobody ever mentions Mordecai again. It's just like the guy that saved the king's life, he didn't even thank. I mean, nothing. So why so long between kings? If, if, if Vashti has to wait four years, well, history tells us that this is when Xerxes went off to Greece and fought uh, against the Greeks. I love it when the Bible corresponds exactly with history, or actually history corresponds exactly with the Bible. And so that's why he's without a queen for so many years because he had been off to war. By the way, he loses the war. So he comes home a little disgruntled and and he picks a queen. He gets a queen. Now, chapter 3. Turn to chapter 3. We're going to be introduced to the next character. His name is Haman. Beginning at verse 1, it says this. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set him uh, and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paged, uh, paid homage to Haman, for the king so had commanded concerning him. Ah, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, remember Mordecai's a Jew, and Haman is an Agite. If you know your history, those two people have been warring forever. And they asked Mordecai, why do you not obey the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they, they tattletailed. Verse 4, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with what? What does your text say? Rage, fury, he is ticked off. But he's so mad that he doesn't want to just kill Mordecai, verse 6 says, alone. He wants to kill out all the Jews. He's going to kill every Jew. Now, you have to remember... King Xerxes is in control of the whole known world. His kingdom goes from Africa and Ethiopia all the way to India. There's 127 states. And Haman is the second guy in charge. And he says, I hate you so much, Mordecai. I'm not only going to kill you, I'm going to kill every Jew that I can. That I can. Now, five years have gone by, and even though it's the king's command, Mordecai refuses to bow. So, in the first month of the twelfth year of Xerxes' reign, so now we've gone from the third year to the seventh year to the twelfth year, Haman asked the king if he could pay him a 
10,000 talents of silver to kill some troublesome people. doesn't mention the Jews by name. He just says some troublesome people throughout the kingdom. Now this is a backroom deal between drinking buddies. That's what they're doing. They're drinking wine, getting a little loose, and Haman says, hey, king, there's some people that don't obey you. They don't like you. They're troublesome. I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver. Let me wipe them out for you. The king like, ah, I don't care. Go ahead. Ah, keep your money. Just go ahead and do what you want to do. Wow. So a decree is issued that all the Jews in the entire kingdom, the entire known world, will be killed and plundered on the 13th day of the 12th month. It's about 10 months away. Mordecai, when he finds out, he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he goes about wailing, crying, weeping. And Esther is informed about Mordecai. Says, your cousin is, is like a wild man and he's going around town in sackcloth and ashes. And, more, and, and Esther says, will you go find out why? Let me find out why. So he goes and talks to Mordecai and Mordecai shows him the decree. And then sends this message back to her. You need to intervene. She sends a messenger back and says, you know the rules. The king sits in his courtroom. And anybody that enters in without him being summoned, unless, what happens? The king extends the scepter. So she's risking her life by going into the presence of the king. Wives didn't have that many rights, even the queen. And she said, you know, I, I can't do that. I'm not, I'm not going to risk my life over that. And Mordecai basically says, if you don't speak, help will come from another way, but you will perish. And the Mordecai says these famous words, and who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. That's the very first fill in the blank. We finally got to a fill in the blank. Here it is. Esther, born for such a time as this. You were born for such a time as this. It isn't random that you're here right now at this place in the moment of history. And Esther has been put in this position of power. So she says, Mordecai, tell everybody in town, all the Jews, to fast for me. And after three days, I'll go in to the king, and if I lose my life, I lose my life. And so after three days, she approaches the king, and he sees her. And he's kind of happy to see her, so he extends the scepter. So she walks into the royal court, and he says, he didn't say babe, doesn't say babe, but I'm sure he had a pet name for her and said, hey babe, what do you want? And she's like, uh, would you uh, come to a banquet tonight that I've prepared for you and Haman? And he's like, sure, let's go eat. Let's go out. You know, so they go to the banquet. And uh, the king knows that that's not the real reason she risked her life and said, uh, honey, what do you want? And she says this. Come back for a second banquet tomorrow night. And I'll tell you what's really on my heart. Okay. I just want you and Haman there. 
Okay, sounds good. So let's pick up in chapter 9. I mean, chapter 5, verse 9. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, verse 10, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeras. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. And then here's the cherry on the top of the cake. Verse 12, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And even tomorrow I am invited by her together with the king. And then verse 13 he says, Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zareph and his friends said to him, Let a gallows, 50 cubits or 75 feet high be made. And in the morning tell the king to give Mordecai over to you and hang him on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Taman. And he had the gallows made. He had a pole erected that's 70 feet tall, 75 feet tall, seven and a half stories tall. So now the king has a restless sleep in between the feast. He can't sleep. Have you ever had a, a night where you just can't sleep? Your mind is just kind of cranked up and you're thinking, I, I, I got to get to sleep. I don't know what to do. So he gets up and he says, hey, guys. Go get some of the records. That will always put you to sleep. Get some of the records of my kingdom and just start reading them to me and they'll blow me to sleep. So his attendants come out and they start reading about an event that happened five years ago. And in the event, it says that Mordecai found out about an assassination plot and as a result, the king's life was spared. And so the king goes, wow, I don't remember this. Uh, did we do anything? Did we honor Mordecai for saving my life? And his attendant said, nothing. We didn't do anything for him. And the king's like, man, by now it's daybreak. And he hears somebody out in the courtyard. And he says, hey, who's in the courtyard? Uh, it's Haman. Now, why has Haman come? He's come to ask for the head of Mordecai to be hung. And the king is wanting to know who's in the courtyard. And he says, Haman. He says, we'll send him in. So Haman comes in, and the king says, what should be done for a man that I want to honor? I want to honor somebody. Now Haman is thinking, who else but me? He must want to honor me. I mean, everything is going my way. This is awesome. And so Haman says, well, I think that this person should wear a royal robe that you've worn and put him on a royal horse and then have your best noble carry him through the town yelling out, this is what will be done to a man that the king praises. And Haman's thinking, this is what's going to be done for me today. And suddenly the tables are turned and the king says, great, great idea, I love that. Go get Mordecai and do everything that you've said to do to him. Suddenly, Haman realizes something has gone completely amiss. So he spends the whole day 
walking Mordecai around on a royal horse, going through the city, praising Mordecai. And this is what will be done to a man whom the king wants to honor. He finally gets done, I don't know, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. He's done. He goes back home. And you could imagine, he's like this going home. What is going on? What is going on? He gets home and he tells his friends and relatives and his wife and his sons, this is what happened to me today. I went to kill him and as a result, I had to go back and praise him throughout the city. And they said, this is a bad omen. And just at that moment, the king's attendants came and whisked him away to the banquet. Oh man, it's getting good, isn't it? At the banquet... Haman the villain is revealed, of course, after drinking wine as the one who would kill Esther and the Jews. So turn to chapter 7, verse 7, and it says this. The king goes outside, and he comes back inside, and the king arose from his wrath, from the wine drinking, and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they had had been drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will you even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And then one of the king's eunuchs said, Hey, Haman had some gallows built to kill Mordecai. And the king says, you go hang Haman on his very own gallows. Now, two months go by. The king has done nothing to undo the edict. Remember, when the king signs something, it becomes law forever. He couldn't get his wife back. He cannot repeal the law to annihilate all the Jews in the 12th month of the year. Two months go by. And Queen Esther, for the second time, comes into the presence of the king unannounced. And he extends the royal scepter to her. And she comes and she says, Look, my people are still going to be destroyed. I might be safe because I'm the queen. And he says, You know what? Call in Mordecai. And now Mordecai by now has been elevated to Haman's position. That's pretty cool. And he says, Mordecai, you figure out how to help out the Jews. So he writes a letter and says, on that day, Jews, that you are supposed to be killed and your property taken and your sons and daughters wiped out or raped or pillaged or whatever, you have the right to defend yourself and you have the right to kill anybody that's trying to kill you. It's an incredible story of God orchestrating events to save the people. Now, I know that was a long story, But here's where it's going to get really good. Here's the second fill in the blank. It's a literary device called doubles and reversals. Doubles and reversals. You know, there's only two books named after women in the Bible. Ruth, a non-Jew who marries a Jew, and Esther, a Jew who marries a non-Jew. Do you see that? And Xerxes holds two banquets, one for leaders and then one for Susa. There are two queens. 
Vashti refuses an audience with the king and is banished, Esther goes and requests an audience with the king and is, and is blessed. Two are offended. Vashti offends the king and Mordecai, Mordecai offends Haman. One will lose his, their position and one will be elevated in their position. There are two beauty pageants. I know that's crazy. Why did they need two beauty pageants if they already have picked a queen? But in the case that Mordecai overhears the assassination plot, the text says that there's a second beauty pageant. Why two? Two beauty pageants, one where Esther is queened and one where Mordecai uncovers a plot to kill the king. There are two plots. One plot to assassinate the king, one plot to assassinate all the Jews. Both are found out. Two times Esther goes in front of Xerxes unannounced. One to expose Haman, the second time to save her people. Esther holds two banquets. Isn't that weird? She calls Haman and the king to her first banquet, and then she says, come back tomorrow for a second banquet. There are two kinds of bowing going on. Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman, and Haman will uh, beg or bow before Esther. Two decrees, one to kill the Jews, one for the Jews to defend themselves, and two right-hand men. Haman tries to destroy Mordecai, but Mordecai destroys Haman. Mordecai is brought low by Haman, but he will be elevated to second in the king. Now, the Jews fast, and later on, they're going to feast because they were delivered. I don't know. I know we went through this entire book very quick. There are doubles and reversals going on throughout the book. And it's kind of cool because what's going to show up in just a second. Now, God is working behind the scenes. He is hiding in the details. He is hiding in the shadows. And here's the next fill in the blank. God is at work whether we see him or not. And I'm not talking about Esther. I'm talking about you. God is working right now in your life, whether you see the vapor trail, whether you see his fingerprints, whether you realize it or not, God is working in your life right now. My little niece, so weird, she was playing over at my mom and dad's house, and this was in Prescott, Arizona, and uh, there's this big old rock that all my kids were playing on with their cousins. And next thing you know, Leah is on the ground with a boulder that is this big on top of her, on top of her back. So here she is lying on the ground and a boulder has fallen down onto her back. And we'll, ah! We get the boulder off. We take her to the hospital. Miraculously, there is nothing wrong with her. But during the x-ray process, they found out that she had a genetic def defect and that her, her spinal uh, column was strangling her spinal cord. And she had already begun to lose feeling, but she didn't know any better because she was only seven years old. She used to be ticklish, and then she wasn't ticklish. They thought they were, she was outgrowing it. She was literally being strangled by her own body. And you just go, well, that's weird. No, that's a vapor trail of God. That, 
I think I know how that boulder fell on my knees without crushing her back. I think an angel gently placed it on it, on her. And there her body was in this little hole where the boulder was sitting. How about world events? Dunkirk. How many of you have seen that movie yet? I think I want to see it. It looks good. Do you know during Dunkirk, I don't know if you know your history, Hitler was on the move. He's only been at, at war for about nine months. He has already conquered France, and he has pinned the British army at Dunkirk. And he is about to win the war, all the World War II. He's about to win it in ten months. And then a miracle happened. Fog came in, and thousands of boats went over to Dunkirk, and they pulled out 338,000 men before Hitler could find them because of fog, because God was working in the details. A coincidence? See, if, if you think that, oh, this was a coincidence, then you don't have eyes of faith. There are no coincidences. God is working in your life. He is in the, he's in the details. I mean, Esther becomes queen five years earlier knowing that what's going to happen. Do you know God is going to do something in this year that will prepare you for five years from now, ten years from now? God cares that much about you. Here's the second fill in the blank, or number two. God's ways are mysterious and unconventional. God asks us to do only what we can do. Go unannounced before the king, and God will do what only he can do, and he'll move the heart of a king. He will move the heart of a king. Uh, a friend of mine once told me this. Why do we expect God to answer our prayer of help me when we haven't exhausted the energy and opportunities that he's already given us today? He's right. The phrase help me for many means God do it. God, you do it. I don't want to go see the king. I don't want to risk. You do it. No. Why do we say, God, give me a new job, but I'm not willing to actually put in an application? Uh, well, I expect God to do it. Well, wait. God expects you to be faithful and righteous and trust him and move forward and let God decide when and where and if all those things come to play. For such a time as this, maybe that's why you're here right now. God asked us to do what we can do, and then he's promised to do what only he can do. He tends not to do the things that he's asked us to do. Do you realize that? He doesn't do that. Now, here's the third fill in the blank, and this is what's going to blow your mind. I think it, it blows your mind. I, it blew my mind. Here it is. God is in the details. God is in the details. Heather, show the next slide. Remember what we said? Doubles and reversals. God's name, Yahweh, is in the book of Esther. I never saw it. I never saw God mentioned. never said the, saw the Lord mentioned. Go to the next slide. In chapter 1, verse 20, catch this. A non-Jew is speaking, and 
this is the letters that spell Yahweh. It's reversed because a non-Jew is speaking. Now go to the next slide. In chapter 5, Esther, the Jew, speaks, and look, it's God's name put together on the last part of the, of, of the words. The first one was women are to honor their husbands. The second one, Esther is uh, uh, honoring with a feast. How about the next one? Is that it? Chapter 5, verse 13. Yahweh is reversed again. And then the next one. And Yahweh is then spelled the correct way. God's name is secretly hidden in the words of the text. How many of you think that's really cool? That is really cool. Why? Why is God hiding in the details? Why is Esther's name mean hidden? Why is God hiding in the details of your life? He hasn't left you. He hasn't abandoned you. He is causing all things to work together for what? For mediocrity? <laughs> no, for what? For good. According to his purpose. And if Esther's name in Hebrew comes from the word hidden, this explains the theme of Esther. God is right there hiding in the shadows. And if you look for him, you will find him. The reason why there's no mention of God or prayer or religious teaching in the book, because those details are hidden so that this book could be distributed throughout the kingdom. Think of it this way. This book, Esther, is like the book of Revelation. Is Revelation a little confusing and hard and full of allegory and, and imagery? But what was its primary purpose? It was written to encourage the saints that were being persecuted. What do you think the primary purpose of Esther being written? It was to encourage the, the Jews that were under persecution in this world system. Same themes. Isn't that wild that we are actually looking at the, quote, book of Revelation for Jewish people? And they knew there was a hidden message that God was working doubles in reverse, doubles in reverse, two banquets, two queens, two, uh, there's just two everywhere. So, God's upper story of bringing forth the Messiah is not going to be thwarted. And God's name is written, it's hidden in the fabric of our lives. Whether it's written forward or backward, I want it to be written the right way. God's working in your life right now. You're looking for a new job and it just doesn't seem to happen. It doesn't seem to happen. It doesn't seem to happen. All of a sudden, God's going to go boom and you're going to get the dream job that you've always wanted or what is the right thing for that moment in time. You're not walking down a path and your path is, you're able to see this. You're looking at a tunnel vision and God is on the sidelines of your life working, causing things to happen for His glory, but for your benefit. And that's why we say thank you, Jesus. Even when bad things seem to happen in our lives, we still say thank you, Jesus. Because God is going to cause good to come out of it. I don't know how. How did Mordecai know? He didn't. 
How did Esther know? She didn't. They just said, we're going to be faithful. And we're going to, that's what God's called me to do. I got to be faithful. I'll give everything else to him. And how did it turn out? And I'll work for good. I want to encourage you with this message. For those of you that don't feel like God's around, I want you to read the entire book of Esther in the next week. And I want you to look at the twos. And I want you to look at the reversals. And then I want you to apply that to your life. And thinking, I'm moving in this direction, but God's going to suddenly take me in this direction for His glory and for my benefit. And if you have seen all these things that have gone on in your life, you are filled with hope and joy. I loved what Tammy said. I didn't tell her to say it, so I love when the Holy Spirit just shows up. When Jesus is just like, 2018 is going to be great. That's the way I feel. 2018 is going to be great. Whether it's for our little church or, or whether it's for the world or whether, I don't know, but I am hopeful. And whether it happens the way I want it to happen, I am thankful that he is on the throne and I'm not. Amen? Let's celebrate him being on the throne with communion. Let me pray over communion. Father.